Welcome to Data Brew by Databricks with Denny and Brooke. The series allows us to explore various topics in the data and AI community. Whether we're talking about data engineering or data science, we will interview subject matter experts to dive deeper into those topics. And while we're at it, please do enjoy your morning brew. My name is Denny Lee, and I'm a developer advocate at Databricks. Hello, everyone. My name is Brooke Wenig. I'm the other co-host of this show, and I'm the machine learning practice lead at Databricks. And today I have the honor to invite my longtime friend, Liam Lee, to the show. Liam and I were grad students together at UCLA, and Liam taught me so many things about machine learning. I will never forget the linear algebra lessons uh, late nights in the lab. And so I would love for you to introduce yourself. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show, guys. Uh, so a little background about me. Um, I recently completed my PhD uh, in machine learning from CMU, where I worked with my advisor, Amit Tallwalker. Uh, on kind of AutoML research and developing more efficient methods to help people find models for their specific tasks and problems faster and with less compute. Um, so that's a little bit about myself. Since then, I've joined Determined AI as an applied machine learning engineer. Uh, and I continue to work on some of the same problems that I did during my PhD, except now um, with more of a product focus, so really building out um, user-friendly tools for machine learning scientists to just be a lot more productive than uh, they would be if they were kind of spinning up their own tools to do distributed training or cloud management and so on. So yeah, uh, great to be here and excited to talk to you guys uh, today. Awesome. So taking a step back before your PhD, what got you into the field of machine learning? What excites you about this field that made you want to get a PhD focusing on it? Yeah, uh, I would say I'm kind of a late bloomer. Um, I studied applied math in college and I didn't really do that much coding until my first couple jobs in economic consulting and finance. And at the time, I I wasn't that excited about finance. Uh, and what I realized was that what I liked the most about my job was the data analysis and modeling components. So that's kind of what made me start looking into kind of data science, machine learning as a career. And what I realized was all the roles that I wanted required at least a master's. So at that point, I was like, oh, I guess I have to go back to school, um, get a degree in computer science or something so that uh, I'll have kind of more of the skill set that I would, I would need for the roles that I was interested in. So I applied uh, for master's um, programs in machine learning and computer science. And Amit saw my application to UCLA, which is where he was at the time. And he asked me whether I wanted to do a PhD with him in machine learning. So that's kind of how I got into you know, machine learning uh, and started on the PhD journey. Um, definitely not the traditional route, I would say, but I think it's been a great experience. So uh, I think anyone who's interested in machine learning and wants to make the switch, uh, I think it's definitely doable. I myself made that switch from kind of more, uh, kind of just a regular analyst position to um, machine learning scientists. So, uh, definitely go after it if that's what you're excited about. And yeah, I, I think the the future for machine learning is only going to get brighter, more interesting, more exciting. 
So now is a good time to join. Excellent. So there's a lot to unpack, actually, because we're going to, for anybody that's listening right now, we're going to actually eventually talk about the Hyperband paper, which is super popular. But you 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 talk about, Liam, you talk about just the concept of like machine learning in general, right? How did you get there? Because there's a lot of steps to get there. First, there's hyperparameter tuning, then all of everything that goes on there that led you to the Hyperband paper. So I'm just curious, like, how, why specifically this area? Can you tell the folks who are listening a little bit about like what are the problems around hyperpan? Uh, so excuse me, uh, hyperparameter tuning in the first place. Yeah. Um, so you know, I think there are a lot of terms that get thrown around these days: artificial intelligence, machine learning, data science. At the end of the day, what we are all trying to do is make sense of the data that we have, so that we can use it to make predictions down the road. Right. So. Um, in terms of how we get to something that helps us make those predictions, usually that involves uh, identifying a good model for my data uh, and then kind of using that model to generate the downstream predictions, right? So um, when you're kind of looking at the modeling problem, there are a lot of different tools you have at your disposal. There are a lot of different modeling types. There are a lot of, or even going before, like to before the modeling process, uh, you're looking at things like how do I generate features or which features of the data are important and so on. So there are just a lot of different techniques and tools from you know, feature creation to modeling um, to the prediction, right? So all the different choices that you have are in some sense hyperparameters, right? So not only are the techniques and approaches themselves hyperparameters, but they also have their own kind of knobs that control how they behave, and that introduces even more hyperparameters. So really, at the end of the day, it becomes kind of this like mix of a data scientist, machine learning uh, engineer, and taking their domain knowledge about what approaches work well for a particular problem, and narrowing down the set of like techniques they're considering, and then using hyperparameter tuning approaches to fine tune that set of techniques, modeling types um, that have their own associated hyperparameters so they can achieve the best performance on kind of the downstream prediction problem that they care about. So you can think of hyperparameter tuning as a kind of a wrapper algorithm around this search process of like finding what the best uh, model and associated hyperparameters are for your problem. Um, and it's just a way to automate that as much as possible and also and perform that search with as few computational resources as possible. Right. So you're, you're, you're trying to imply the fact that you didn't want us to manually go ahead and do a checklist and go through each and every set of parameters yourself, right? So you're trying to avoid that problem. Right. Like if you're training uh, just a convolutional network, right? You have to think about what sort of uh, learning rate and how do I configure my optimizer for gradient descent? What sort of regularization should I apply to the weights? Should I use dropout? How much dropout? Like all these uh, questions are kind of concerning the hyperparameters, right? And you're trying to tune them so that you get the maximum predictive performance for the problem that you're interested in. Right. So then 
that naturally leads us to like what's the I guess currently popular, or at least maybe popular two years ago, is Bayesian optimization. So like we would use those techniques as a method, as our way to try to figure out what the heck's going on or try to basically optimize our hyperparameters. Can you tell us a little bit then maybe what are the, the pros and the gotchas for using those type of techniques? And then I think that will naturally segue to hyperband in that case. Uh, so, I mean, I, so, you know, as practitioners, the go-to techniques are just very simple, kind of brute force methods like random search and grid search. So here you kind of have um, some strategy for deciding which hyperparameter settings you should try. So grid, you have evenly spaced points in your search space, random, you're sampling randomly from some predefined distribution. Um, if you look at these brute force method, one natural question is, can we hope to do better by being smarter about which configurations, the hyperparameter settings we want to evaluate, right? So can we use past experience, past information about how different hyperparameter settings performed before to make an informed decision about what we should try next in hopes of maximizing uh, the predictive performance, right? So. That's what Bayesian optimization methods try to do. So they have some like internal model of what the performance, say validation performance is of different hyperparameters uh, in the search space is. So there's like an underlying model that um, is be being updated and, um, and maintained as you get more and more data about the performance of different hyperparameter settings, right? So you evaluate a certain hyperparameter setting, get a metric of how well it performs, feed it into your Bayesian optimization model so that you can update what this, uh, what this surface looks like over hyperparameter space, and then you can use that model to help guide select new hyperparameter configurations that are more likely to do well. Right. So that's, that's kind of how Bayesian optimization approaches try to speed up the search for a good hyperparameter setting is by using that knowledge and having this modeling surface that helps guide uh, selection of better hyperparameters as you see more and more hyperparameters being evaluated. So while Bayesian optimization allows you to leverage previous experiences with your different hyperparameter configurations, what about specifying the bounds? Like, do you have to tell it, these are the hyperparameters that I want to tune, or these are the allowable range of values that I want you to stay within? How do you incorporate that information? Uh, yeah, so um, you you basically specify it through like the, the search space that you define, right? So you can say, you know, in the case of learning rate, you can say something like, I want I'm, I only want to consider learning rates in between a certain range. Uh, and that is information that you feed to your function that is being fit over the search space, right? So um, like all that is kind of done in the search space specification step. So even before you apply any of these algorithms, you have to say what your search space for hyperparameters are, right? So uh, for learning rate, you specify a range. For weight decay, you specify a range. For dropout, you specify a range. All that is fed into the hyperparameter tuning algorithm. So if you're 
using random search, you will sample from this constrained range that is predefined, right? So the same thing with Bayesian optimization, the function uh, or the model that's being fit over the search space is also constrained by the same bounds. So going back to like a structured grid search, one of the key drawbacks of it is that we can just specify a really stupid search space that we want to compute a bunch of models over. Um, how do you ever foresee any libraries incorporating these best practices of like, if you're going to build a random forest, don't try to do depth 40 or don't try to do a learning rate of 50. How do we ensure that when humans are designing the search space, they use reasonable search values? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I think, you know, if you're looking at existing tools out there for you know, auto ML, so there are libraries like auto SK learn that search over uh, like the most popular methods for either classification or regression from the scikit-learn library. That, that tool has kind of predefined ranges for the hyperparameters already, because that's kind of the, the domain knowledge that a data scientist brings. So if you're using something, a tool like that, uh, that part is kind of done for you. Otherwise, you, I, I think they're just, it's, it's in some sense domain knowledge that you build through experience in manually build, uh, training these models in the first place, right? And the, I would say the search ranges should also be data specific, right? So um, it's not, there isn't tech, there isn't a rule of thumb search base that'll work well for every single data set, right? I think there's always going to be some element of trial and error where you spend a little bit of time finding what a reasonable uh, range for the parameters are, and then you kind of search around that uh, range of values. So there is some, there's still gonna be some trial and error. I think looking at the default parameters for the models you're considering in uh, any of the libraries that you use is a good place to start. So if you look at scikit-learn defaults, if you look at um, MLlib defaults, right? So I think using those, sticking to those defaults as a starting point and then kind of expanding the search space around the defaults is a good uh, way to get started in kind of identifying what your search space should be. Got it. Well, then I think that this is probably a good segue into now, how does the hyperband approach actually differ from Bayesian optimization? Yeah, so, uh, so hyperband is kind of distinguished by its use of early stopping. So if you go back to Bayesian optimization, what we're trying to do is be adaptive in how we select hyperparameter settings to evaluate. So that's where the adaptivity is, it's in the selection. What hyperband tries to do is uh, we, we are not being adaptive in how we select hyperparameters, but we are adaptive in how much training resource we allocate to different hyperparameter settings, right? So, uh, so the actual hyperparameter settings that are being considered are still drawn randomly from a search space, but the algorithm is deciding which configurations to train further and which ones to stop training, right? So that's where the early stopping component comes in. So. Uh, as a human, if you're manually tuning a model, right, you might just try specific settings and they don't seem to be working well, you'll stop, switch around some values, run again. So 
you know, the early stopping paradigm for hyperparameter tuning is trying to replicate that same sort of logic, right? So if a particular setting is not doing well, then we shouldn't allocate more resources to it and we should instead uh, focus on training the hyperparameter settings that appear to be more promising. So that's the key idea behind hyperband. Uh, I think what differentiates hyperband from kind of other early stopping approaches, uh, like the median early stopping rule is commonly used. Um, and what differentiates hyperband is that it is theoretically grounded in, uh, in analysis that we've done to show if you use the hyperband algorithm, you're guaranteed to find a good configuration as long as you allocate enough resources to it. So I think that gives people more comfort in using the algorithm because um, of the theoretical underpinnings, um, which, which you know, I think are, might be a little bit more uh, technical than we want to dis uh, discuss here, but I do think it uh, has helped with just people being more comfortable using the algorithm. And the algorithm itself is actually very simple. Um, so Hyperband uses this, this what's called a multi-arm bandit algorithm um, called successive having, and it's really simple. You start off with some set of com hyperparameter configurations you're considering. You allocate a very small amount of training resource to all of them. So this can be like training your model for one epoch for all the hyperparameter settings you're considering and evaluating them after training one epoch and then throwing away the worst half of performing hyperparameter configurations. Uh, and then in the next round, you just allocate more training resources to the remaining configurations. And you do this until you're left with say one hyperparameter setting that's the best from the set that you started with. So the algorithm themselves very intuitive um, and very easy. I think a lot of the uh, like more challenging bits was the actual theoretical analysis that was done to show that it's provably correct. I really love the approach of Hyperband. It's so simple and it's implemented in a lot of popular libraries like TensorFlow. Um, I really like this idea of don't waste all of your compute if you know that that model is not going to perform well. Just cut your losses early and instead double down on the models that are performing well. And so it's just such a simple and, ele <coughs> simple and elegant idea. And I'm curious, how did you come up with this idea in the first place? Yeah, um, I think there's and throughout the course of my work, there's always been this theme of simple is better and simple actually performs surprisingly well, right? So even before I started working on the problem, there was a paper by, um, by Berger, I think he's like random search for hyperparameter tuning, which basically showed that uh, that random search is very competitive and you know, there are situations in which random search performs almost as well as Bayesian optimization. It's also much better than grid search. So, so that paper, I think, really kind of like was, was the inception of this idea that random search by itself is already really good. So then our question is, how can we improve random search? And early stopping kind of seemed to be a really natural thing to try because it is already what we do as grad students, right? Manually tuning hyperparameters. Um, a lot of a lot of it is like early stopping and just domain knowledge, trying a bunch of different things and 
eventually and kind of coming to a global or a local optimum uh, around the search base that we're considering. So, so early stopping seemed like a really good uh, technique to combine with random search. And then the question was, it was how do we uh, automate this early stopping process so that researchers, practitioners can focus on the more interesting aspects of model development instead of just trial and error manually tuning hyperparameters for these models. Uh, and it works really well. So um, I think when we kind of get to the next section I, where we talk about neural architecture search, I think random search will show up again. It's just one of those things where the simplest method oftentimes is just a very strong baseline. So we've got an excellent segue uh, coming from, uh, from coming from the context of random search. What exactly is neural architecture search in that case? Yeah, so neural architecture search is kind of exactly what the name suggests. So with the, all the focus on deep learning these days, I think a lot of people are kind of curious or just like are wondering how how do all these architectures come to be and is there kind of modifications that we can make to popular architectures to further improve the performance right so if you look at inceptionnet or inception v3 or um, resnet or even before that, AlexNet, right? So all these architectures seem somewhat arbitrary. Like why do we put convolutions in specific layers? Why are there a specific number of filters and channels and so on? So I think that's a natural question to ask is how do we design architectures and how can we kind of maybe perform some local search around known architectures to further boost performance? So right now, at least, that's the type of questions that neuroarchitecture search is answering. So um, the search spaces are, in some sense, what differentiates neuroarchitecture search from just your typical hyperparameter tuning problem. But I think at the end of the day, neuroarchitecture search is just another hyperparameter tuning problem where we're considering a very specialized search space where the hyperparameters all control what the architecture looks like, right? So we're not necessarily thinking about how to optimize the learning rate of the optimizer or regularize the model. With weight decay, we are thinking more along uh, the like how do we tune the hyperparameters that control the actual architecture, right? So if you take a very simple uh, search space for, you know convolutional architectures, you could be looking at kind of how many convolutional layers, how many channels in each layer, what sort of pooling function should I use. So that's kind of what a simple simplified neural architecture search space can look like. The search spaces that are being used in the latest research are much more complicated, have a lot more hyperparameters. Um, so you are looking in effect at quadrillions of possible architectures in a particular search space that you're interested in, right? So, um, so again, just to summarize what I said there, because it was a lot, uh, it's just another hyperparameter tuning problem, except now the search space you're considering is specialized for architecture, for different architectures. So how, feasi how feasible is it for everyday data scientists to leverage neural architecture search? 
There was a paper I read a while back that, and they were claiming state-of-the-art results, but they were training on 800 GPUs concurrently. And I know I get yelled at if I use more than like four GPUs concurrently. How common is it for everyday data scientists to use neural architecture search? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And that question has motivated a lot of more recent work in neural architecture search. Uh, if you look at the first generation of neural architecture search approaches, they were all these experiments, methods were coming out from Google and they would spend thousands of GPU days to search for these architectures. Uh, and it's in, in, in the beginning, it was very expensive to do neural architecture search because all the algorithms that people used actually require training individual architectures for some number of epochs and evaluating it before sort of updating a policy um, that would be used to select a new architecture to evaluate. Since then, um, since then, a lot more efficient methods have been developed. So now we're talking on the order of say, you know, one GPU day to do architecture search. Right. So um, there's definitely work in kind of making neural architecture search more. Um, applicable and more useful for the general practitioner. Uh, so it's, you know, be on the lookout for kind of these more efficient NOS approaches. I would say though that the companies that are doing a lot of or industrial scale research into NOS have been fairly good about open sourcing the architectures that they've discovered. So you can go and take one of these state-of-the-art architectures published by Google and apply them to your own data set, right? So they will release the architecture along with pre-trained weights. So it is really easy to benefit from the com computation that other companies have already poured into performing architecture search. Um, yeah, so that's all to say that I think there is definitely benefit in using some of the results from neural architecture search research in your own uh, sort of modeling process, right? So whether it's using some pre-trained weights or using some of these more efficient methods and applying them to your own data sets, uh, I think it could be worth investigating some of these possibilities for computer vision in particular. And uh, more recently, I think, um, NLP and transformers, but there's definitely less work, I think, in, in those areas. Yeah, that definitely makes sense to leverage the architectures that these companies with tons of compute are generating. I've seen some of them and they have skip connections going from like layer five to 17 and to 21. Why they pick those layers, I have no idea, but it performs better. Um, so that, that's definitely a really helpful piece of advice of just leverage the architectures that they're discovering, even if you yourself are not actually doing any neural architecture search. And so I wanted to follow up on that. Do you have, since you're doing research in this area, do you have any general guidance for architecture designs or, hype, or um, architectural patterns that you tend to search over different combinations of them? So one application area where neural architecture search really shines is kind of customizing architectures for specific deployment settings, right? So given the hardware constraints on different phones or different edge devices, you won't be able to fit the same model on every single device. So you want to find kind of smaller and more efficient architectures for specific deployment scenarios, right? So 
that's I think where neuroarchitecture research is able to offer a lot of benefit relative to just using say a fixed architecture but scaling the the channels or scaling the width down to fit on specific devices that's kind of the the simplest approach same architecture and just like scale things relative to uh, the deployment constraint with NOS you're you're able to do something that's more fine-grained and um, this once and for all approach trains a single what's called super network that includes all possible architectures in your search space and then you can use that super network to find architectures to fill up an entire Pareto front of trade-offs between accuracy and say latency or accuracy and memory usage. Um, and you can just do that by sampling architectures, passing them into the super network that's already pre-trained and using the super network to get a signal for performance under certain constraints. Once you create this Pareto front, um, so where you kind of tr try to maximize the accuracy say for every single um, slice of like inference point so particular inference speed that you care about um, and then you can have like a range of different inference speeds maximize the accuracy you can just take those best architectures and push them to the devices that you care about right so that's i think one um one application of nos that's really exciting and i think potentially really useful for people um, and this once and for all approach, again, you've done the training of the super, you just do the super, super net training once and you're able to use this one network to search architectures for a bunch of different deployment settings, right? So the cost of the, the, the architecture search is amortized over all the possible deployment settings that you'd want to consider. So I think that's, that's a really exciting way for, um, for people to start using NOS as well. Wow, this is extremely interesting uh to say the least I i'm gonna switch gears just because uh we're taking a lot of your time and we really appreciate it um uh, on a completely different note here what's the piece of advice that you would have probably wanted to given yourself actually uh, as you had started this journey in into machine learning that is yeah yeah i i think there kind of there are two points where i could have given some really valuable advice to myself um one point is during my PhD, uh, I think it's natural to have doubts during a PhD about whether you, you're going to make it, whether you can publish enough to graduate. Um, and I think I would have just told myself to focus on the journey and not the destination. Uh, to quote from Brandon Sanderson, if people read that series. Um, but yeah, like the journey, I think, is is much more enjoyable if you're not constantly thinking about, oh, am I going to graduate? Am I going to am I going to be able to publish? Uh, I think, you know, I think regardless of kind of where the low points might have been for me, the PhD was a really great experience, and I learned a lot throughout uh, the journey. So, I think it's really important to focus on that aspect. Um, the other thing I would tell myself, and this is before I even started a PhD, uh, I think I would have told myself to just go and do it, right? I think I was somewhat intimidated by machine learning before I got into it. Um, and, and I think I would have been less intimidated if I just got my hands dirty 
and tried a bunch of different things. Um, and I think that it's even that's even more true now than it was you know five years ago with a lot of the open source tools and libraries that are available, it's very easy to try machine learning and build machine learning solutions for a bunch of different applications, computer vision, object detection, NLP, whatever. That's all super easy now. And if you're interested, I think you can get really far with just a little bit of programming experience and basic knowledge of machine learning. so yeah, I would just tell myself to go and do it and not not make excuses for why I couldn't have gotten started five, six, seven years ago. Um, so yeah. That's some super helpful advice. I really hope everybody takes home that message of just go out and do it. Try out different hyperparameter tuning techniques. Try out neural architecture search. Just go out there, learn and do it. Um, I wish I had that um, mantra when I was an undergrad wanting to get into machine learning, but just not knowing where to start. Um, so thank you again so much for your time, Liam. I always learn so much from every conversation that we have. And thank you again for joining us and sharing your expertise on hyperparameter tuning and neural architecture search. Yeah, definitely. Thank you guys so much for having me. 